G'day team, Matty Guyatt here, your host for the Hard Yards podcast. The journey of bringing some of sports elite and their stories and methods of how they get to the top of their chosen field is well and truly underway as we head into episode four. As COVID-19 continues to restrict face-to-face interviews, please bear with me as we've had some minor audio glitches during this episode. My apologies. The content, however, is awesome, so I hope you can overlook those minor issues and share it around to your friends. Let's get into it. Well, a big hello and welcome to the Hard Yards podcast live, in fact, uh, for episode four. And my guest this afternoon probably needs no introduction if you're an NRL fan. Uh, it is the current host of NRL 360. Well, maybe not current at the moment. There's not too much NRL 360 happening. But uh, certainly NRL, former superstar, state of origin, Australian representative, Ben Iken. Thank you, Ben, for uh, taking a bit of time out of your Saturday afternoon to join me uh, right here on uh, episode four. My pleasure, Matty. Uh, I know we've been mates for a long time and it's normally me invading your world, right, the golf course, and <laughs> you're invading mine. You're a host of a multi-platform, multimedia podcast. <laughs> Yes, well, I am, uh, you know, all those times on the golf course, Ben, I haven't just been uh, playing golf with you, obviously. I've been uh, doing my best to learn a little bit from you and uh, and following your footsteps uh, into the media world. If I could only be 10% as successful, I'll be a very happy boy. (laughs) Big rap. Thank you. Mate, I like that lamp in the background. Has it got a bit of significance in the uh, Icon family, that lamp? It has. It was... uh lamp that was planted there as was the question <laughs> you're asking that was made by my wife's uh business that she works for called saxon cornish i think it's saxoncornish.com.au so that's s-a-c-h-s and cornish and works there a couple of days a week and that my friends is what they pump out it's uh they're called bespoke lampshades there you go you can figure the rest out there you go. So that's you know my first official plug on the Hard Yards podcast, first bit of advertising. So I'll hit uh, hit your lovely wife up for the advertising fees for that, Ben, a little bit later on. No worries. Speaking of which, talking about family, tell us a little bit about Ben Iken and and the you know the younger years of Ben Iken. Where did you grow up, and you know what does family consist of to you, and and um, maybe even lead into where what sort of sports you played as a young fella growing up, Ben. So I'm from the Gold Coast. I'm one of the very few true locals. I was born in Tweededs Hospital, which is kind of hard to take because for those that uh, would be aware, Tweedheads is actually south of the border. So for Queenslander, that's not a nice thing to have to say. But mum and dad, mum and dad assure me I was conceived in Queensland. I was just rushed across. Uh, <laughs> it was a couple of days. Uh, so born at Tweededs Hospital. I went to Crumman Primary School, Palm Beach Grumman High School, which is at the southern end of the Gold Coast. I, uh, I have two younger brothers. One's a singer-songwriter. Uh, the other's uh, a, a dancer who works around the world. Uh, we come from pretty simple folk. My, my dad's a truck driver, removalist, that's uh, had his own business here and there. Mum was a, a homemaker who worked in dad's business. So it wasn't as though we came from sort of some... Uh, 
extraordinary married couple that had achieved great things. Uh, great people, my parents, and worked really hard and did a good job to raise myself and my two brothers. Uh, but uh, we all were given a great work ethic and sort of great values that led us to be pretty handy in our own fields. Uh, so it was a, an interesting Christmas having a rugby league player, a dancer, and a singer-songwriter, uh, to say the least. And we all kind of had our turns in each other's crafts. Uh, Mum and Dad made sure we all kind of had a crack at learning music. Uh, we all did gymnastics uh, and we all played rugby league. I stuck with the footy. Uh, of course, my middle brother stuck with the music and my youngest brother's had an interesting journey. So he was a very talented gymnast and in fact was trialled as a, a young Olympian but was told very early on from about the age of eight, he was going to be too tall. And they were wow. bang on. He ended up about six foot three, six foot four, Anthony, which has actually made it difficult for him to get work as a dancer. So he's sort of shifted into choreography, now lives in LA. And um, my other brother lives on the coast and, and still has a, a great life uh, gigging and earning money and uh, university qualified teaching English. Uh, so... That's kind of the, the family where I came from. And then, of course, you know now that uh, once I took up footy, I must have fallen in love with it because uh, rugby league has been a, a central part of my life from about the age of 11. Um, it's given me many great things, many great opportunities. Uh, and at the top of that list, of course, is my, my wife and my four children today. Ben, just talking about your brothers, it's fascinating to see them and, and listen to the different directions all three of you went in, um, you know, in life. And, and you spoke about the, I guess, the parents and their work ethic and how it was instilled into all three of you. Were any of you more naturally gifted in your areas you went off into or was, you know, were all three of you required to be, you know, hard, hard workers? Um you know, to, to excel at your craft or were you naturally talented? Naturally talented in all cases, yeah. Uh, you know, we had the work ethic, so we committed to the prep. You know, we, uh, I love training. Uh, my musician brother loved practising and writing and my youngest brother's probably got the, the, the best work ethic out of all of us. Um, he, cho he chose the hardest path, that's for sure. Um, but it was a, <clears throat> we were lucky that we were blessed with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the natural ability. And then of course that, uh, that whole learnt idea of, uh, of work ethic, the capacity to, to be resilient, um, to persist, um, you know, growing up in the family that we did watching, you know, my old man do one of the toughest jobs on the planet, you know, day after day, head out and move people from house to house in, you know, 30 and 40 degree heat, which ends up, you know, 60 degrees in the back of a truck and be forced to do that as a young child, slave labour, every school holidays, I think um, put us on the right path. So, Matty, to answer your question, it was a bit of both. You know, we're all naturally gifted in the, the field that we chose, but we, we also learnt the, the value of hard work along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And a bit different from maybe the Johns brothers as well and that, you know, your passion for rugby league wasn't necessarily um, beating it up with your brothers in the backyard because if they were off doing their own thing and not necessarily, one's a muser and one's a dancer, I'm, I'm assuming they didn't want to be crash tackled by their, their brother Ben in the backyard. I'd be surprised, yeah. <laughs> I, would like 
they might have been forced out there. <laughs> That's in part where I might have grown a, a confidence that I was actually okay at the sport because I continued to beat up on two guys who weren't as good as rugby league as I was, and they were both younger, right? So yeah. you get an inflated sense of self. Um, so you turn up and think you're actually half. Uh, I think the challenge for a lot of people, self-belief isn't overly common. It's certainly a, a common thread through all the great ones. And it starts somewhere, which is, you know, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, often he will um, point to the fact that uh, a lot of great uh, sports people, champions in their field, are born early in the year, in that first quarter, because uh, in sport, that would mean you are more physically developed which over time means you're probably going to dominate a lot of your peers in the same age. Yeah, for your age group. That's right. You get used to winning. You get used to being the, the alpha male or the alpha female in your age group because you are a little older. And that extra confidence allows you to, to do things that perhaps others wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And was there any, ever any... Uh... Well, I'm sure there was some sledging, but was there ever any egging on of each other to hey, give up that, give up the guitar playing, come and play rugby league, or, or vice versa? No, not really. It was just we were like three normal brothers. We just yeah. competed and argued, competed and argued. There was never a question about you know why are you doing that or why aren't you doing this. That was sort of never part of it. It was we sort of in the end we respected that uh, we'd each made different choices and I think the competitive drive um, for all those that are watching the last dance at the moment um, where yeah. developed his sort of uh, great appetite for competition because he continually got beat up on by his older bro brother Larry I'm sure some of that drove my younger brothers you know that whatever we, we were competing at and you know even being older I still felt the same is that we all wanted to be better than each other uh, yeah much inside and uh, see who'd finish dinner first as it would be out in the backyard playing footy or turning <laughs> the art of gymnastics or hit the right note on a guitar or a piano. Yeah, it was, um, it was unique, uh, but in, in terms of the things we did, but I don't think it's uncommon how as siblings, we drove each other to be better. You mentioned a, a book just a minute ago, Ben, and, and one of the things that you're, I guess forever encouraging me with, which is a, a really poor skill in my life, is is the reading of books. And I know that you're a massive advocate for reading books. And and has that always been the case for you? Like, has the chase for knowledge and understanding, um, both within your craft, outside of your craft, life as a as a general rule? I know you delve deeply into that sort of stuff. Has that always been the case for Ben Iken, or is that more of a, something that's happened post your football career? Now, I've always been intensely curious. I, I mm. can't feel confident in doing something unless I properly understand it. So I, I tend to ask a million questions, you know, and as I've gotten older and more self-assured, you know, I, I don't care who you are, you know, Tiger Woods could be walking off the 18th green at Augusta, if I had the opportunity to ask him three questions in the three seconds that he walked past me, I would ask them. And, you know, the other skill in terms of learning is being able to actively listen, you know, so you kind of, you ask, you give some space, you get the information back. 
and that's essentially all reading is, right? You, you, you create a space in your life uh, to find out about someone else's. You know, I, I read a lot of fiction. I also uh, read a lot of non-fiction, you know, so I'm sort of obsessed with the fantasy genre, funnily enough. You know, so, you know, I've read Lord of the Rings a few times. I kind of read any number of fantasy trilogies. That's kind of my escape. I go to another place. And then when I'm in a mood to learn, I'll, uh, like, uh, Matty Johns just texted me a couple of days ago. I've had this Michael Jordan book sitting in my house. I just sort of haven't had the propensity to want to pick it up yet. And simply because he texted me, he said, you have to read this. It's one of the best sports books I've read. You know, I've had it for two days now and I, I can't put it down but it's it's not it's not so much because I've got a thirst to learn it's just because I'm curious by nature and I enjoy the process of being able to understand something and then the upshot is and the unintended benefit almost is that I've got this knowledge I can then apply mm. yeah, that's so it's it's more than anything um, my love of reading has become a good habit almost by accident in terms of being able to get better at the things, you know, I want to do in my life. What was that curiosity like and how, what did it look like then when you were a young fella and rugby league took over your life, I think from age 11 and was a, a passion. And obviously at that age, do you have, uh, you know, where, where do you project yourself going in rugby league and, and what did you do from a curiosity perspective to feed your, um, curiosity to, to be better as a rugby league player and maybe reach those goals? So I used to go down the, uh, the local library, 11th Avenue at Palm Beach. Wow. And I would sit there in front of the, uh, the, the TV screen with the video recorder and watch the 1982 and 1986 Kangaroo Tours on loop over, <laughs> over and over. I would, uh, I would take out books that would kind of educate me on the skills required for rugby league. I used to tape games and watch them over. I remember one Christmas, I'd only started watching rugby league in 1987. My dad bought me a highlights tape of uh, all the origin series from 1980 to 1985, again, on loop. And then even as I progressed into high school, I can specifically remember staying up, you know, to all hours to watch even those uh, midweek games that the kangaroos would play on tour when they'd go to England. It was just a, you know, it's almost like an addictive personality. So when I love something, you know, I, I can't get enough of it, you know, whether I'm, I'm watching tape and now, you know, <laughs> golf has come into my life. You've probably seen the same thing as, you know, the amount of stuff I can watch on YouTube, the documentaries or tutorials, the amount of books I've read, you know, uh, be it sort of skill-based stuff or uh, even the history of the game. You know, I, all the stuff I read before I went to the Masters last year about the history of Augusta, you know, way back to when Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts bought the nursery and turned it into what it is to that. Like, it's just, um, that's just who I am. Uh, and so with respect to how did that help shape my goals? Well, of course, when you are watching kangaroo tours uh, over and over when you are just consuming every other day state of origin highlights of course you want to emulate what you see so I had this uh, innate drive to be like my hero so in Queensland that meant I wanted to play state of origin you know I just I was obsessed with the game I was obsessed with representing Queensland uh, I wanted to play for my country I wanted to play NRL 
Um, so I've got no doubt that all those visuals that have been flooded into my brain as a young guy set me up to have the success I, I would have later. You know, I was, um, I was inspired. You know, it, it wasn't so much that I had a goal. It was just that I had this uh, daily inspiration through my curiosity uh, to see what I wanted to achieve. Yeah, that's awesome. And and who was it? You know, was there anyone that you were watching during that time that you were? Answer to that. Any young kid growing up in Queensland through the eighties, who did they love? <laughs> King Wally. Exactly. <laughs> was King Wally first and Daylight second, and then funnily enough, you know, sort of eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, it wasn't till until '88 that the Broncos came into the competition, but for whatever reason, I think it was because Mel Meninga was the captain of the Canberra Raiders. I've, I I ended up falling in love with the Raiders. Yeah, you know, right. Played in that grand final in '89. I hadn't really had a history of supporting a side in my family. I can't remember exactly when or how it happened, but I became a Raiders supporter. And then, of course, in the early '90s, when you supported the Raiders. As a Queenslander, it was difficult because my favourite players then became Ricky Stewart, Bradley Clyde, Laurie Daly, you know, then Brett Mullins after that. They're all bloody blues players. Yes. So I'd get to origin time, I'd be tortured. You know, my heart would be cheering for Queensland and, you know, all my favourite players would be uh, lining up for the blues. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard you talk about that, uh, you know, from an origin perspective. Maybe a nice little segue into origin. So as you progress through your rugby league career, you find yourself somehow as an 18-year-old getting a call up to play State of Origin football. It was a phone call. Is that how you found out? Found out off TV. Found out off TV. I did, yeah. They, back in those days in 95, they used to read the teams out in Queensland on uh, they used to broadcast the, the naming of the team live. So I sat down, that was the Super League, <laughs> to find out whether or not they were actually going to pick Super League aligned players. Because right. the, and if they didn't, that meant no Brisbane Broncos, right? Mm. The Broncos weren't available for Queensland. Who the hell were they going to pick? Well, we know now. Um, ben Eichen. Baddies Neville's got the <laughs> Sitting at home with... Two of my mates, I'd not long moved out of home and we were watching the naming of the side. They were both playing football themselves and had their own hopes and dreams and saw their 18-year-old roommate get announced that he'd be playing for Queensland in the coming part of Origin City. It was uh, pretty mind-blowing, yeah. Yeah, wow. And so off you go. Um, You know, it's quite a famous little story about you meeting uh, the coach in an elevator and... um, him sort of telling you, hey, 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 this is the origin floor. Um, and you said, well, I'm part of your team. What was it like that week, Ben? You know, how did you, did you feel like you actually belonged? Was there ever a moment where you felt like you belonged at Queensland State of Origin team camp leading into Origin 1? Or did you feel like you totally didn't belong the whole time? So I could make something up, right? But I'm going <laughs> to question and say, did you have a good time at your 18th birthday party? Yes. And I'd say, tell me why, and you just couldn't. No. So it's because it's a blur. Yeah, you're right. You've got no life experience. You sort of lack emotional maturity. Uh, everything around you 
is surreal. Mm. You don't even know what that word means at that point in your life. <laughs> Sounds like someone said it wrong. <laughs> uh, it was just eight weeks of utter chaos. You know, that's, that's the best way to describe it. So I'd like to sit here and explain to you that, you know, I felt out of my depth, um, that I, I, I realised how enormous the challenge was going to be. But the truth of it was, um, I just got thrust into this situation and I just tried to survive. And yeah, wow. the reason I did, the reason we all did, because we all felt a little bit out of our depth considering, you know, the strength of the New South Wales squad compared to ours, was that we fought together and Fatty made that happen. He was our guide. He was the epitome of what was possible in the, the, the toughest version of rugby league on the planet when you probably don't have all the gifts that your opposition do, right? Fatty was just a battler, you know, a, a, a ranger battler who just <laughs> anything but his best and was always one of the better players on the field whenever he donned the maroon jersey. So we had Daly in front of us, not just Fatty Vorton, who represented what we need to be, but Choppy Close, probably the most passionate Queenslander, you know, that's ever been made, guiding us through this chaos. And um, we did it... We got it done because we did it together. Yeah, the ultimate team. The sense of belonging was off the charts. You know, we just knew to survive and to thrive. We had to be more than the sum of our individual parts. And again, that was not a phrase I would have even known back in 19. <laughs> but I felt it. I, I felt protected. I felt safe. I felt inspired. And I felt that we were playing for something bigger than ourselves. You still felt those other real emotions amongst that though, Ben? So, you know, sitting on the bench in Origin 1, were you... You know, feeling like you were, were going to vomit. Please don't call me onto the field. You know, I want to get on. Why am I not on? What, what emotions? That, I, I kind of got wrapped up in the game, to be honest with you. So I was actually selected to play in the Queensland under-19 side. Uh, so that's how little I expected to be playing for, for Queensland that year, the Maroons. So by the time we got down to Sydney Football Stadium for that first game, we get through half the first half. We're leading 2-0. We get into the second half and I'm just thinking, oh, yes, Queensland are going to win. We can win this. We can win this. <laughs> it occurred to me that I was actually part of that Queensland side. <laughs> and then immediately I considered the fact that Paul Voughton, Fatty might put me in, you know, throw me out. <laughs> All of a sudden my anxiety levels uh, just went through the roof. Uh, I turned to my right and the fat man was looking at me and he's, saying, are you ready to go on? And I'm saying, yes, yes. Put me <laughs> he put me out there and we won 2-0, uh, you know, and all of a sudden I felt a, a new level of comfort in my surroundings, you know, having won an origin game with Queensland that we weren't expected to win as a group. We took that into game two. We won in Melbourne. And then, of course, we got that wonderful opportunity to come back to Brisbane for three and do it in front of our home crowd. It was pretty special. So... If we fast forward one year then, Ben, and we go to 96 for Origin and you've been a part of a 3-0 win in 95 and you're not in the Origin team for 96, how does that play out with a young 19-year-old and, and your mental 
capacity. Obviously, some players were coming. I think Super League players were available the following year. Is that right? Or yes, yeah. So how did that play out for you the following year? Did you just say, kind of say, okay, I expect that I'm not in the in the top seventeen now that the uh, the superstars are back in town? Yeah, no. It, I mean, I'm I'm easily distracted. So when that comes up, it might kind of sit on my conscious for a while that I might be selected and then when I wasn't selected uh, I might have been disappointed but it's never never for a long time you know it's yeah. it's the it's the beauty of having a mind like a butterfly right you can be here one moment then over there the next and um, <laughs> it kind of it helped me because you know once I sort of got through my disappointment I joined the North Sydney Bears I was at a great club who were having a good season I had things I needed to do there. I had expectations from Peter Louis, our coach, Jason Taylor, our captain. So, you know, once the Origin Series got underway and I realised I wasn't going to be part of it, you know, I just focused on what was in front of me, which, to be fair, most teenagers do, right? You know, we just sort of, it's get up, put your undies and your shoes on and <laughs> do what you're told to do, then come home and go to bed. It's, uh, we don't think... Uh, much deeper than that and so at that point in my life you know again it's I'd like to turn it into something it wasn't you know some form mm. of diversity but the truth is it wasn't I, I I love that kind of change of life that I'd had going from uh, the Gold Coast and playing for Queensland in 95 uh, to being in Sydney playing for the Bears and not playing Origin in 96 it was just another chapter and one I was enjoying so I, I didn't beat myself up did it inspire you or drive you towards wanting to get back to origin level ever? Uh, you know, was it just a matter of, yeah, you're shake, shaking your head here for those, um, you know, we're, we're catching up on Zoom here, you know, in this podcast given the COVID situation, so we're not in the same room, but for our listeners out there, um, Ben was shaking his head at me as soon as I was saying that. So elaborate. Again, Maddie, I mean, you've got to remember that the... Um the, the overthinking that plagues us as we get older really isn't part of our life at that age. You, you might not remember how, how little deep thinking you did as an 18 and 19 year old. For you, it was get up, play golf, go as low as you possibly can and yeah. come home you know, and go to bed. That's, you know, and that was certainly the case for me. It, you know, it's, 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 it's the best time of your life because uh, the world is opening up to you, you know, and for me, that meant professional rugby league and a shift to Sydney and everything that comes with it. I was uh, failing as much as I was succeeding on and off the field. And I look back now and there were things I could have done better and wish I had have done better, but I don't regret that I didn't because every mistake I've made has led me to this point in my life where I am now, where I'm so blissfully happy. Yeah. So, you know, it was just this melting pot of I, I, I wasn't a I wasn't a tier one player. I've never been a tier one rugby league player in the sense that you know uh, Wally Lewis, Andrew Johns, Brad Fittler, Darren Lockyer, Jonathan, Th those guys are tier one. I always sat in tier two and tier three, which meant uh, my journey was more lumpy than linear. You know, it was a bit more of a roller coaster in terms of form and emotions and experience and mistakes off the like it, and that doesn't bother me in the slightest. I, I, I had a, a great journey and, you know, 
what was true for me in 96, you know, missing out on origin and then, you know, being able to shift my focus and keep my focus on what I was doing at the Bears remains true today. You know, I have opportunities that I might like to chase in my life today, but they come and they go. Sometimes uh, I grab hold of them and make the most of them. Other times I have a crack and fail. It's, it's just, you know, so if you can keep a, a sense of humility, which again, is not something I completely understood at 19, but certainly get now and realise that you know, life's no much, not so much a, a case of trying to get from A to B, but um, just enjoying the dance. Um, the dance is so much more fun. Yeah, it's awesome. How do you decide, just on one of those things you said there, how do you decide which, which ones you go for, which opportunities you might go for, Ben Iken? And, oh. and, and even if you fail? It's, it's gut feel, a lot of mm. it. You know, I'd like to think I do some analysis on you know, what I chase and what I don't, but you know, I'm a highly sensitive person that is in tune with his emotions and knows and understands that sometimes you know, what my gut is telling me uh, is maybe more risky than, you know, what I really want for this stage in my life. Um, so you, you've just got to trust that uh, your gut's not always right. So if you follow it and you fail, that's okay. Your head's not always right. So if you follow that mm -hmm. and you fail, that's okay. Uh, the truth of it is we're, we're all failing our way to success, right? I mean, again, in line with that documentary we're watching at the moment about Michael Jordan, you know, he's got that, Great line, I can't even remember. You know, he's been given the final shot in games, you know, 3,000 times and, you know, missed 600 or 300 or... Five. So, you know, even the great Michael Jordan has stepped up and thought that, you know, when it counted most, he had to chase that opportunity to win a match or something in his life. Uh, that He's had some fail failures post his career, despite the fact he's been blessed with this enormous ability and is lauded around the world that if he can fail, we can all fail. And to be comfortable in failure, uh, to be able to know that it won't kill you, you can get up, dust yourself off and go again, that you'll be better for it, I think is the, the, the great point in my life that I arrived at that has helped me find that contentment um, to enjoy what's happening around me each day. Mm, great, great words. With your NRL career and your, your awesome time at the Bears, what was it that drew you to the Broncos? Uh, I, I played under Wayne Bennett in 1998 and in the Queensland State of Origin team. Uh, so that was the first combined side I'd been part of. So I'd played in 95 for a split team, 97. Uh, for Queensland in a split team. So I, I hadn't played Queensland with the Broncos, uh, for Queensland with the Broncos yet. So 98 arrives, Wayne's the coach, Elfie's the captain, Kevy's the 5'8", Wendell's in the side, Gordy's in the side, you know, Steve Renoff's in the team, uh, Darren Lockyer, Shane Webke, Peter Rock. Like, so I just got a taste of uh, how the Broncos approach their work. Uh, I love being coached by Wayne. I... I I love playing with those guys. I just never, I could never, coming from a team like the Bears where we had a lot of serious dudes, you know, like uh, Billy Moore and Gary Larson and, and Jason Taylor were all very focused, professional types. Uh, 
when I first joined the Queensland camp in 98 and watched Kevy and Elfie prepare and uh, pretty much every day they just woke up and took the piss out of Wayne, you know, <laughs> training, after training, cracking jokes. I, I thought you, you can't be that good and have so much fun at the same time. So it was, it was not that it was better than what we were doing at the Bears. It was just different. Different, yeah. And I, I really connected with that. I, I, I love playing for the Bears. I love the guys I played with. Uh, but once I'd sort of got in my head that at, at some point I wanted to get back to Queensland, because there was no team on the Gold Coast, that the logical next step was to try and get a, uh, a spot at Brisbane. And I was lucky enough that one opened up in 2000. Uh, I met with Wayne. I went up there as a centre and ended up playing I guess a little bit like you know, stepping into a Queensland side first year out of high school. I arrived back at Brisbane at the age of 23, I think I was. And in my first season there, we win a, a premiership. You know, who mm. Yeah, it's awesome. And just on Wayne, what was... Is the rap as big on Wayne as a coach as what everyone thinks? Is he, is he that good? Is he, is he the the ultimate that you've ever played under? He is. Absolutely he is. Because he, his wisdom is really conventional. It's, it's, it's homespun. Uh, his messaging is very simple. Uh, his strength of character is, uh, I guess, really powerful. Uh, so when you're in his presence, you know you're in the company of someone who's comfortable in their own skin and knows what he knows and doesn't venture outside of his comfort zone. You know, so I remember reading once in a book called Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, this great line. It's sort of the only thing that's ever stuck with me out of the book is that knowledge isn't power. Specific knowledge is power. And Wayne Bennett knows the shit out of rugby league. <laughs> lived it he's breathed it he's had successes he's had failures and he's been able to take all that experience and wrap it up in a really simple effective coaching style with a real powerful message and so if at the end of the day what you're looking for from a leader is engagement from the followers then that's where Wayne beats the rest you know at the end of a working week under Wayne Bennett you get what he wants from you and you want to give it to him. Um, he, he gets his players to play for him. Is it true that he used to, you know, uh, you know, pick up the phone and, and, you know, ring his players personally re on a regular basis? Well, I remember after I'd played with him in 1998 in the Queensland side, I'd, I went back, of course, and joined the Bears. I stayed at the Bears in 99, which was a pretty tumultuous year for, for me and the club. You broke a jaw that year? Yeah, I did. And uh, so I was having a, a couple of issues off the field. You know, I was just being young, dumb, making some poor choices. And he was coaching the Broncos. And he, he probably rang me six or eight times across that season just to check in to see how I was going because he'd coached me in Origin the year before. Yeah, wow. And it, that, that was almost more powerful uh, than the experience I had with him in origin in 1998. You know, so I kind of, you know, when you're looking for a bit of certainty in your life, uh, particularly at a, an age where uh, there's a bit of chaos happening around you, um, 
Wayne Bennett's almost like this totem pole, you know, this kind of guiding light, just in terms of the advice he gives and the, the, the strength of character he exhibits. So I was naturally drawn to that. So, it, you know, by the end of 1999, I, you know, most of that year, I didn't know where I wanted to be, uh, whether or not I wanted to stay in Sydney or go home. Um, when Wayne offered me the opportunity to come to Brisbane, it, it sort of almost might sound like uh, he was recruiting me across the 12 months, but I mm. remember the conversations and everything he told me was about getting back to the Bears and doing A, B, C to be as best as I, at, at the best I could for North Sydney. And yeah. it wasn't, wasn't until right at the end, you know, where I, I don't know what had happened on the Broncos roster, but a spot came up and it was just good timing more than anything. I just felt this sort of natural, Kind of want to be coached by and learn more from him. Do you think ever? Do you think he ever looked at that when you arrived at the Broncos? And you know, as uh, a lot of people who know you, Ben, know that you ended up courting his daughter and marrying her. And uh, how was that? Did Wayne? Do you think Wayne ever thought, "Oh my gosh, what did I do here? What did I open myself up to in this son-in-law of mine?" I hope not. <laughs> What was that like? What was that journey like? You know, all of a sudden, was there a was there a there's a bit of a rumor around that there was a no dating no dating the boss's daughter policy. Oh, I don't know if that was a rule. I think that was just because Wayne was the boss. <laughs> no one was going to. So now I'd, I'd I'd met my wife Beth just at a party with some mutual friends, and you know we sort of got to talking for about. 10 minutes and it, it had felt like we'd known each other for 10 weeks. And then of course we start dating. We are going out for about 10 weeks and feels like you've been together for 10 years. You just know, right. And um, so I was always nervous of what Wayne might think, but um, I never felt the need to explain myself. And again, I was still pretty young, so I probably wasn't going to do a really good job of it anyhow. So he had this, um, you know, him and his wife, Trish, just gave Beth and I our space to figure it out. There was no pressure. Uh, there was no advice. It was just, I guess, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good person because they're good people. They probably got a sense of that themselves. Uh, I'm, I've got no doubt they would have seen how happy we were together. And, you know, if, you know, with kids yourself, um, I've got four that for the most part, all you want to do is see your kids happy. And I'd, yeah, like, for sure. I'd like to think that back then and still today, I make my wife happy. And because I do, that makes her parents happy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so football came to a bit of a grinding halt for you, probably a lot earlier than most rugby league players finish their careers uh, with a knee, knee issue. Um, talk us through that time and, you know, what was difficult? Was that difficult or was what you've spoken about already, just a part of how Ben I can approach that. Yeah. So 2001, I sort of ripped my knee apart in New Zealand and it took three operations and two years to get it back together and on the field. And, you know, I kind of started to explore about what, what life after football looked like for me. And I went back and studied, um, I was doing some work experience uh, in the commercial team at the Brisbane Broncos. 
And I started to get excited about that stuff. I mean, I was still only sort of 24, 25 uh, when I was going through the rehab. But when I kind of get curious and my focus shifts off what I'm doing onto something else, it's hard for me to get it back. So when I eventually got back on the field in uh, 2003, I played one season. Uh, it was like the buzz was gone. I'd sort of... Yeah, wow. Two years to get back on the field. I'd played that season and I, I kind of thought, now oh, that thing's done now. I've done that. You know, I sort of, I proved I could get through this and back on the field. I wasn't the player I used to be. I couldn't train the way I used to train. So I just decided then and there I was going to get off into the real world. I got myself some marketing qualifications, took up a marketing manager's job at a, a big licensed club in Brisbane and um, I think I went back and played some part-time footy for the Toowoomba Clydesdales in 2004, which was great fun. You know, I'd be back in a, a grassroots competition. Um, but sort of once the, uh, the, the love for the game, the playing of the game was no longer there, at least at the same intensity it used to be, I felt really comfortable m- moving on. Hmm. It wasn't hard. Yeah, wow. And did you not did you not play one last game for the Bronx in a final the following year, two thousand four? I played about six or eight games, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I was I was in that game in two thousand and four. That was Gordon Tallis's last game when we got beat by the Cowboys in in Townsville. Ten- I think it was that the, might have been the Cowboys' first year in a, a final series. So um, not the way I wanted it. To finish well, I didn't expect to be there. I thought that the year before was, was your yeah, last season, yeah. Um, but even still, to come back, play most of that season with Toowoomba, and then get called up for the Broncos a few times. Uh, much fun, but just you know, if you're going to compete at that level and be fair to your teammates, the club, and the fans, you have to be all in. Yeah, and I was no longer all in. Just yeah. So it was time for me to um, move on to the next chapter. Growing up, as you spoke earlier, Wally Lewis was the man. Having played an NRL career now, playing state of origin football, represented your country, Australia, a couple of times against the Kiwis. Who's the greatest player you played with in that time? Look... uh... There's a few. It's it's hard to separate them. I mean, I'll let me start south of the border. So I got the chance to play with Andrew Johns. Let's move I, on. We'll go north now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the kangaroos, and he's he's otherworldly. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. Natural ability. You know, people say when you go and watch Tiger Woods play golf, it's just it, the ball makes a different sound. Yep. You know, the, the ball does things you, you didn't think it could do. You know, a- Andrew Johns is the same. You know, he, not only is he a great individual player, but his capacity to be able to bring others into the contest and get those around him doing things that they normally wouldn't be able to do uh, for mine puts him sort of in another world. Um, so Andrew Johns was one. Brad Fittler was the bloke I feared most playing against. You know, he was a big, strong, running sidestepping 5'8", and no matter, uh, no matter how advanced I was in my career, how good I was playing at that particular time, whenever I came up against Brad Fittler, I would be nervous. Like, even hmm. if I 
sort of got to a stage in my life where nerves were no longer a problem. If I was playing Freddie, I was nervous. The other guy that used to make me feel that way was Paul McGregor. When I used to play in the centres, yeah, right. you know, six foot four, six foot five, you know, super quick. And I mean, you think Freddie's got a big sidestep. Mary's was huge. He had these long legs and sort of, <laughs> and, you know, trying to get hold of him was really difficult. Uh, but then north of the border, I love being able to play with El Flanger. I mean, he... Technically, he did everything wrong, right? You know, to kick, <laughs> to kick left, he'd point his body right because he was so short to kind of swing his leg around his body. Uh, whenever he did one of those grubbers, it never sort of went the way you wanted it to. He didn't pass properly. He didn't tackle <laughs> the trip blokes, you know. To, <laughs> but uh, he had this, this drive and this will to win and just this way to be able to take what he had and sort of spin it into something that was so effective. It, 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 it beggared belief. Um, so Elf was, and, and Elf made playing and preparing for rugby league so much fun, just a perennial jokester. And then of course there's my great mate. who's also got himself a statue at Suncorp stadium, Darren Lockyer. Um, I was given the great gift of uh, growing up and playing against Darren. He was from Southwest. I was from Southeast. So we played the same position. Uh, so we played opposite each other as juniors. We played in rep teams together. Um, he, was, he was always the best in our age group. He was just, he was a class above, did it easy, looked easy, felt easy. You know, the bigger the moment, the better he was. And that just continued into his, um, his NRL journey. So Still worked hard. Hey? Still worked hard. Darren Lockyer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. They, that, listen, all those guys worked hard in their own way. So um, Mary McGregor was very natural, but surprisingly uh, super fit, which is, you know, uh, an area of work he got into after he retired. Successful businessman, got in, but got into that strength and conditioning stuff. Uh, Andrew Johns uh, worked harder with his brother Matthew on the skill side of the game than any player I've ever seen. So they just used to, uh, they, they were regularly training, you know, I'd say one, two, three, four times a week outside the, the team sessions to hone their craft. Elfie wasn't interested unless there was football involved, right? So yeah. you run laps, Elfie's last. You're in the gym, Elfie's lifting nothing. But the moment you got out into the park and there was a football introduced and it was a competitive game, he was unstoppable, had this enormous natural drive. Yeah, Darren, Darren Lockie is a perfectionist uh, by nature. And so he wanted to kind of perfect everything that was fear of influence. Uh, it wasn't so much referenced against uh, others in the group. He just had this great internal drive. And then Brad Fittler was... Uh, he was a scoundrel for the sort of first half of his career. And then by the time he got to the Roosters and had all that success, uh, you ask any of his coaches and they will tell you he set the standard in every area. Mm, wow. They mightn't have all worked hard in the traditional way and yeah. same time in their life, but eventually they all figured out that at some level... Uh, the great natural ha ability had to go together with with a version of hard work at some point. 
which, you know, when you get the ability and the work ethic come together, it just explodes. From, from all of that and thinking about the way you did things, Ben, have you been able to apply any of that cross code into your golf passion now? So how you applied yourself to be, you know, your training, your work ethic, how did you break down what you needed to work on in rugby league? You know, just an interesting sort of side thought to, you know, how did how does that cross over into how you train for golf and how you try to be a better player? Um, obviously, we know you've played two Queensland PGA Championships now. Um, so, you know, any, any sort of cross-code similarities? I took nothing out of rugby league into golf. And, in fact, the thing that tortures me is that everything I've learned at a more mature point in my life with golf... I wish I had have applied to my rugby league. Yeah, it's, wow. It's actually the opposite of what you're thinking. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't drag my rugby league habits into golf. If I had of, I, I'd still be off Aideen, I reckon. Uh, <laughs> so I, I look now and uh, I, I live this, that whole mantra of you know, performance loves preparation, which I apply to my golf and my media work. Um, albeit a lot of it comes, is born out of that natural curiosity. You know, I'm at a stage in my life where I understand that sort of hard work and routine and repeatability is important to output. Uh, and I think if I just had to be more disciplined and consistent with that as a rugby league player, then I probably would have had a more consistent career, mm. uh, which I didn't. As I said to you before, I was tier two, tier three, my journey in rugby league was very lumpy, not sort of linear. Um, whereas post football, I kind of, I, I, I look back and did some uh, analysis, spotted the gaps as I learnt more about, um, you know, professional excellence, peak performance state, and then it started to come together, you know, this whole understanding of who I was, what my strengths were, what my weaknesses were, and then how I, um, uh, build a plan that allowed me to be the best I could be. Whatever it is, I, I decided I wanted to do with my life. Um, but the, most of the learning that you would think I would have uh, had in rugby league, I really wasn't ready for until after I retired. Yeah, wow. That's awesome, isn't it? It's a, kind of almost a flip um, in a way. You spoke about uh, Paul McGregor earlier and his transition now as a coach in the NRL for St. George Dragons. Never a, never a thought from your perspective on, on coaching or moving into coaching, your passion, which you said, you know, at the Broncos, you started to sort of find your way um, into other areas. Uh, so never a desire to coach and, and always to sort of move in the direction you moved and, and the media side of things. Well, I've got a, um, I've probably got a, a bad combination uh, with respect to coaching in terms of what sort of emotional experience it would produce for me. I've become a control freak. So I like to manage um, every <laughs> part of the process and I'm highly sensitive, right? So if you're trying to manage, you know, 30 odd young men um, to do all the things that you knew and know that you couldn't do back when you were their age, uh, and that when they don't, uh, you will be despondent. <laughs> you, are, you are setting yourself up to either lose your hair or go grey very quickly. Whereas in my world right now, 
I've got really very few people acting on me. I've got a co-host who I love working with who challenges I've got a producer uh, who's very, very good at what he does. And then beyond that, I've, I've got no one acting on me. I, I, I sit there for, for NRL 360. I, I confer with those two people across the day. We design a rugby league conversation. We go out and have the rugby league conversation. And then once it's done, I move on. I've got to have another one the next day. And I've been thankful that a lot of people like the show. They watch the show. They're engaged in the show. So uh, my employer wants to keep the show going, which means I've still got a job. And based on how we approach it, which is very methodical, very well researched, again, uh, making sure that uh, the preparation is right so performance is on point, um, I, I, I can't see now the, the mindset that I've built to be good at what I currently do how I could cross back to an environment where your success and failure is so largely dependent on the efforts of 30 young blokes, you know, mainly between the ages of 18 and 28. That could possibly send me over the edge, Matt. <laughs> so it sounds a lot like we're going to see you on NRL 360 for the foreseeable future uh, in that case, rather than sitting in a, well, you know, I feel like I had a full head of hair before I turned to coaching golf, actually, Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know what it's like, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's challenging. It's certainly challenging coaching golf when one of your students is um, so invested in the learning process and you know that the next lesson he comes back to, uh, he's spent hours on YouTube reading books and uh, doing the Ben Iken thing. Um, that first part of the lesson was unraveling a little bit of that and then getting stuck into the work. But uh, it was a joy and is a joy to still spend time with you coaching. So, Ben, NRL 360 requires its hard work as well um, for you to be prepared and to, to put the show on. Is that uh, is there anything else in the pipelines for Ben Iken moving forward or that's the investment of time and energy for you at the moment as well as your family, obviously? So I sit on the board of the Queensland Rugby League, which has been a, a fantastic way to stay involved in the game at a level that I really enjoy, which is community football and sub-elite football. So that's the Interest Super Cup, our state league competition down through the, the junior leagues, men and women um, across the state. And of course, uh, managing the or overseeing the, the origin program for Queensland. Uh, so at the moment, I get this opportunity, you know, to, to pass a commentary on the elite game through NRL 360. So uh, keep friendships and uh, maintain contact with people who like to discuss the game as much as I do and then go on TV and have those conversations I'd, I'd have for free as my um, uh, full-time job. And then through the Queensland Rugby League, get to make a contribution about the governance of the game uh, in Queensland, you know, which is where I grew up, I played, uh, has given me so much opportunity. So then to be at that level and ensure that the game remains contemporary enough uh, with current trends so that there continue to be a whole stack of families and kids, uh, young men and women who have as an enjoyable experience as I did way back in the, the 80s and 90s, uh, today and into the future means I, I've sort of got, I've got both boxes ticked, right? That's, it's, mm. a, it's a 
perhaps that if, if, if you want to kind of have the dream job in rugby league, I kind of, or the dream mix of jobs in rugby league, I, I, feel, I feel like I've got it. So I, I feel very blessed. I feel like listening to that, Ben, that the, the game is also blessed to have um, someone like yourself, you know, so heavily involved from, as you said, grassroots all the way to the elite level. So I think rugby league can be quite thankful at the moment um, having you involved. I have one last question and it's been fascinating to listen to your journey and, and to be honest with you, be surprised in some of the responses in regards to some of the adversity you face and how you dealt with things and the refreshing way you, you it's kind of as i think you mentioned um putting your undies on and your socks on every day and going out to the next day um you know fantastic way to look at life is that you know each day is a new day and go and give it your best um so i have one final question which i ask all of my uh, guests on the hard yards podcast if you could be another sportsman through history uh, for one day, current or, you know, in the past, who would it be and why, Ben? Who would Tiger, you choose to be? Tiger Woods, 2019, winning that 15th major at Augusta National, right? So I would have saved the 12th hole a little more, watching Francesco and... Uh, <laughs> Tony hit the ball in the water. I probably, I, I would have aimed a little right of the bunker, not straight at it, like uh, you know Jack Nicholas has always claimed was the place to go on the twelfth hole over Rose Creek. Uh, and then uh, I would have, as Tiger, thoroughly enjoyed all those rules. I was there for Fox Sports. Those rules are real. They are different. Um, no one gets rules like Tiger does at Augusta National. And then as I finished 18, uh, one, I would have put, uh, I think it was a 9-iron, he hit into 18 on the green and made birdie. Um, that would have been the only difference. And then when I walked off and hugged my son, my daughter, my mother, my partner, my manager, I would have taken a couple of steps to the left and given Ben Iken a high five because <laughs> next to Luke Elvey. <laughs> in the working media section, about three metres from Tiger Woods watching him celebrate. Uh, I, I, the, the reason I love Tiger is in part why I've learned to love Michael Jordan all over again is because not only are they so much better than everybody else, but uh, they come with these real human flaws, right? Like yeah. that they are deep and when, when those flaws present themselves in their lives, they have to live through that failure, you know, in front of millions of people. And for most of us, you know, in the face of failure, particularly public failure, what we feel like doing is retreating to a dark room, getting in a fetal position and sucking on our thumb. Um, but these guys, you know, they... They internalise it. I don't know what they do with it, but it ends up in a box somewhere on a shelf. They get up, they go back out, and they do it all over again. Now, I kind of look at Tiger and sort of everything that he's gone through in his life in terms of his failures and how public and profound they have been, all of his own doing, um, but then to, to rebuild his life and his body, uh, to, to come back and do what he did last year, I would have... I would have loved to have lived that. 
you know, and, and you know, all the criticism that may be deserved, you know, in terms of how he's managed himself and his private life and, and, and whatever, but with pretty much the entire golf world saying that he would never, ever do what he did at Augusta National in 2019, how much he would have enjoyed that. Yeah. But then to know that nobody expected him to do it, just it would have been magnificent. So that, that, would, that would have been my day. That Sunday at Augusta, winning his 15th major. There you go. Tiger Woods for a day. Ben Iken joining some of my other guests in suggesting Tiger Woods is the one they'd love to be as well. So, Benny, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been enlightening and a very enjoyable chat. Um, I wish you all the very best as we continue to live out this somewhat of an isolation period uh, as COVID happens. Rugby league looks like it's potentially starting on the horizon. So I wish you all the very best as you get back into that uh, with NRL 360 and the season kicks off. And of course, all the very best in trying to beat your son, Joey, on the golf course, which I know is another passion of yours. So thanks very much, Benny. And I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks, MG. Good luck with the new venture, mate. Brilliant stuff for my great buddy, Ben Iken. What about some of those stories? But for me, it was the thoughts and the ideas on how to overcome setbacks along the way that will resonate longest. I'm sure some of the youngsters in your life could even learn a thing or two from Ben. So a massive thanks to Ben Iken. Next week, we move on to AFL royalty as I get a very cool opportunity to sit down with a four-time premiership player and absolute legend of the game, Luke Hodge. I can't wait for that, but until we hear his voice in episode 5, I hope you all stay safe and remember whatever you are doing to put in the hard yards.